0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Imagine yourself as a German Christian about 1943. And you know that something seems terribly wrong in your nation and with your country's leadership. And that Jews, some of whom you count as friends, are being rounded up and sent away by train to what's called concentration camp. There are quiet rumors of the worst. And your family has taken in a Jewish family that you know. They've been hiding in your attic for some months. When one day the Nazi police come to your door, they knock. You open the door. Are there any Jews in this house? What do you say? Do you tell them the truth? What do you think God would want you to do in this moment? As we turn this morning to the ninth commandment, which we often summarize as do not lie, we find that the commandment is Slightly more wordy and in a particular context. Maybe there's some subtle nuances than our simple summary. There's a setting here,'s the courtroom. "You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." The Ninth commandment is not as terse and punchy and perhaps as universally applicable, at least at first glance, as six, seven, eight. Number six, you shall not murder, no courtroom there, everywhere. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery, everywhere. Number eight, you shall not steal. There are some careful considerations that we need to make here with the ninth commandment, and there's some complexities we should account for, as we'll see, and yet there is clarity and substance here that we dare not miss in the ninth commandment. So let's begin with a definition of lying based on the ninth commandment, as one of my professors did. And then we'll consider the ninth commandment first in black and white. And then we'll consider some hues of gray. And then finally, we'll talk about the ninth commandment in full color, so to speak. So what is lying? One of my favorite seminary professors, a guy named John Frame, wrote a big, thick book on ethics, and one of the ways that he organizes his ethics is on the Ten Commandments. Very helpful. If you want some helpful sources for continuing your study of the Ten Commandments, Frame's ethics book is fantastic, as well as we've talked about Westminster Larger Catechism. We'll go there later on this morning. Here's his definition of lying based on the Ninth Commandment. He says, a lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to harm him. A, a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to harm them. Now what we typically think of lying as happening with our words. And that, that's right. That is, that is typically the case. Proverbs 18:21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we know this. Death came into the world through the deception, Genesis 3, of Satan, of Adam and Eve. And life, eternal life, comes through the truth of the gospel. But lying can also be acts or behavior. It's not just what we say. We can also communicate falsehood, with our actions. Revelation 22.15 talks about that outside the new heavens and new earth are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You can tell falsehood and you can practice falsehood. Lying is also intentional. We're not talking here about miscommunication or misunderstanding, even though those are culpable. Or accidental deception, but intentional deception through words and actions. And at least here, we're not talking about enemies, we're talking about neighbors. You share not, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The rules of engagement say for war are different than the typical courtroom context. In war, you are not under obligation to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to your enemy. And also, there's some games or sports in which it's agreed upon that there are certain forms of deception that are according to the rules, while other forms may not be, like stealing in baseball. That would, Break the commandment to steal, but not in baseball. Part of the game, stealing a basketball. In football, intentional deception plays a major role in the game. Bootlegs and flea flickers and a corner blitz. But there's other forms of deception that are not according to the rules, like breaking the huddle with 12 or 15, or sending multiple men in motion at the same time at the snap. So there are different contexts, war, games. Finally here, lying seeks to do harm to a neighbor. So we're not talking about a scenario in which you might intentionally deceive someone, perhaps somebody about to jump from a bridge, in order to help them and keep them alive. Not ruling that out. One more disclaimer here under the definition. Not all lies are bald-faced. Most are half-truths, perhaps. Lies intend to deceive a neighbor for his harm, or at least for the selfish benefit of the liar. And half-truths are often the most effective manner of lying. This is the kind of lying that Satan's known for, beginning in Genesis 3. So, lying according to the ninth commandment, is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to harm them. And in the main, the story of truth and lies is plain enough in the scriptures in black and white. Throughout the scriptures, there is a stark contrast between telling lies and speaking the truth, bearing false witness, whether in court or in conversation with a neighbor. Not only undermines the order of society, but is an affront to God himself. Easy as it might be to tell a half truth, lying is a big deal to God. He takes it very seriously. Consider some of the contrasts in the scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. On the one hand, God never lies, Titus one two says in fact. Hebrews 6.18 says, it's impossible for him to lie. On the other hand, Satan is the father of lies. Going back to the garden in Genesis 3. And Jesus said of Satan, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8.44. God hates lies. Proverbs 6.16-19. 6, and, and God delights In truth, Proverbs 12, 22, the essence of sin is exchanging truth for lies, Romans 1, 25. Unbelievers lie. It's a typical attribute of the unbelieving in Romans 3, 13 to 14, quoting the Psalms. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Lying is typical behavior for the unbelieving. And God hates liars and will destroy them. Psalm 5.6, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And then to go to the end, to Revelation again. Revelation 21.8, as for all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. But the gospel is called the word of truth. So Paul calls it Ephesians 1.13, Colossians 1.5. So James says in James 1.18, it's one of the best nicknames for the gospel in the New Testament, the word of truth. And the church, as we saw about a year ago in 1 Timothy 3, is the pillar and bulwark of the truth of the gospel? The pillar holds up for all to see. The bulwark protects the sides. That the church is the one that holds up and displays the gospel, and the church holds fast to the gospel. First Timothy three, fifteen. While false teachers speak lies, first Timothy four one to three, genuine teachers speak the truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. While lies express unbelief, truthful speech reveals purity of heart. This is Psalm 24, 3-4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then Romans 14, four to five, talks about those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and of the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. Sinners enjoy Lying. Proverbs eighteen eight, but God's people speak the truth and love the truth, Colossians 3, nine to 10. So from the garden to Sinai, to the Psalms and Proverbs, to the gospels and acts, to the epistles, to the book of Revelation, the story of truth and lies is told in black and white throughout the Bible. On the one side, you have God and truth and the gospel and his people, and honesty, and joy. And on the other side, you have Satan, and deception, and destruction, and misery. And while there is this certain straightforwardness to the contrast between lies and truth, we know life is complex. Life is complex. The longer we reflect on the simple truth of the ninth commandment, the more we see the surprising ways that it's manifested in our lives and how relevant the ninth commandment is to everyday life. Give this some thought. If if the ninth commandment doesn't seem immediately relevant to your life, you haven't thought it through very deeply. I'm trying to to help here with this. And one place we've gone in the series to get help has been this Westminster Larger Catechism. If you want to do a study on the Ten Commandments, I would recommend Westminster. It's also a good lesson in English to kind of wade through some of that old Puritan English from the mid-17th century. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 144 and 145 are about the ninth commandment. Question 144 asks, what are the duties required by the ninth commandment? And then 145 says, what are the sins forbidden by the ninth commandment? Now, I won't read the entirety of those two questions and answers for you, but let me just highlight three things. As I lingered over these two questions in the Westminster Larger Catechism, three things really stood out to me that may be helpful applications for us, extensions for us of the ninth commandment here in 2020 as City's Church. Let me read those for you. I'll, I'll give you the language from Westminster with a brief explanation. The first one, Preserving and promoting the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. So the ninth commandment commends that we would preserve and promote the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Lying isn't just about what we say to somebody's face, but it also concerns how we talk about others. And it, it's more than simply avoiding slander and gossip. That's for sure included. But obeying the truth of the ninth commandment means protecting and preserving rather than besmirching the reputations of others. Whether that's in face to face communication or whether it's in the cesspool of ninth commandment breaking (laughs) online, social media. And it begins in our hearts. Here's how Westminster fleshes it out. The ninth commandment, obeying the ninth commandment includes a charitable esteem of our neighbors. This is in the heart. A charitable esteem of our neighbors. Loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces. Defending their innocence a ready receiving of a good report, an unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning them. I came across a quote here from John Calvin about this unwillingness to receive an ill report. That was so interesting. Here's Calvin. He's talking about us as sinners, how, how prone we are to do this. He says, we delight in a certain Poisoned sweetness experienced in ferreting out and in disclosing the evils of others. Well, that's gossip, whether it's online. Those magazines at the grocery store. <laughs> and let us not think it an adequate excuse if in many instances, we are not lying. There's, there's more involved here than simply avoiding lying, technically. For he who does not allow a brother's name to be sullied by falsehood, by his own speech, also wishes it to be kept unblemished as far as truth permits. In other words, if you love the truth that is commended in the ninth commandment, not only will you keep yourself from speaking words that would damage the reputation of somebody else, but you also would not Admit, not receive an unfounded, unfair, ill report of somebody else to your ear, but push back in various forms. Maybe a sharp rebuke, or maybe just saying, Well, that may not be the whole story. Have you considered this? I know this about that person. Being a truth teller means going to bat for other people, it means refusing to be cynical of others. Westminster calls that unnecessary discovering of infirmities. (laughs) Oh, man. Giving the benefit of the doubt to others and wanting to do so. God's got to do heart work here. And this is the kind of thing God's in the business of doing. He does heart work. And Westminster also thinks that it's a good thing to defend yourself in normal circumstances It says, we should love and care for our own good name, defending it when need requires. So, the first little discovery here from Westminster and application is preserving and promoting the good name of others also includes ourselves. Number two then, keeping the ninth commandment means not outfacing and overbearing the truth. Not outfacing and overbearing the truth. What does that mean? We saw in 2 Timothy 2.15 that we are to rightly handle the truth. Meaning, there's wrong ways to handle the truth. Elsewhere, Westminster forbids speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. There's a proper way the truth should be spoken Telling the truth means more than just saying true things without any concern for how and when and where and why. Truth is precious. Don't throw the pearls before swine. Specific truths are for specific times and seasons and places and reasons. And then number three, keeping the ninth commandment means not vainglorious boasting. That's Westminster's way of saying going against the grain on social media, right? My dad would call this tooting your own horn, ruled out by the ninth commandment, I believe. Westminster expands it to say that we should not think or speak too highly or meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God. If you you want a key textbook with this. Romans 12.3, how important Romans 12.3 is for how we talk about ourselves. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what's ruled out there is both an inflated view of self and over-speaking about yourself, as well as undermining the graces and gifts of God the measure of faith God has assigned. So the story of truth is told in black and white, and there is a stark contrast to it. Even though the applications can be complex and perhaps surprising, more so than simply what seems immediate, but what about the Jews in the attic with the Nazis at your door? And what about the Hebrew midwives? Just a few months ago, we were in Exodus chapter one and we learned about the Hebrew midwives who did not tell the truth to Pharaoh. And Exodus 120 says, God dealt well with the midwives. And what about Rahab? You know the story of Rahab in Jericho who hid the spies, Joshua chapter two? She lied about the spies, so to speak. Seems like it. She definitely deceived her neighbors related to the spies. And Hebrews 11.31 says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab's commended by Hebrews chapter 11. So there are gray situations in life. Not many, but there are some. In addition to the midwives and to Rahab, the life of David, both before he was king and then in his old age, is attended with what we might call several gray scenarios. It's really interesting how these, how these kind of uh, cluster in 1 and 2 Samuel related to the life of David. Getting David to the throne and then keeping David on the throne during the rebellion of his son, Absalom, was no small thing. These, these were times of turmoil. These were desperate times, a chaos That's what you see. Uh, People are more prone to lie and bend the truth when times are desperate. So the first set of circumstances for David is when Saul is king, and God means for David to be the next king, and for Samuel to anoint David to be the king, and he knows that Saul's not going to be happy about that. And the prophet Samuel anticipates that Saul is going is to respond like he ends up responding. So in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is ready to deceive Saul if Saul asks where he's going when he's going to Jesse's house to anoint the next king. And then in 1 Samuel 20, David with Saul's son, Jonathan, who was his dear friend. They strategize about a deception against Saul against Jonathan's father, Saul, because David's life is under threat from Saul. And so David, when he's on the run from Saul and he's in danger among the Philistines, he deceives Achish, the king of Gath, as 1 Samuel 27. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jerishmalites or against the Negev of the Kenites. Rather than telling the truth that he'd actually made a raid against the Philistines, but perhaps the closest scenario to the Nazi question in on the first half of David's life before his reign is in 1 Samuel 19, verses 11 to 17. It's really striking. David is married to Saul's daughter, Michal, and David's under threat and my call Saul's daughter deceives both her father's men and her father in helping David escape from the threat on his life this is first samuel 19 11 to 17 i'll read it Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning when life is at stake but my call told him if you do not escape with your life tonight tomorrow you will be killed so my call let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And she took an image and laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its feet, and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, "Here's a lie. He is sick." So she's deceived with her actions, making it look like he's in the bed when he's not, and in saying that he's sick. Then Saul sent the messenger to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of the goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to his daughter, Why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy, he calls him an enemy, let my enemy go so that he has escaped. And my call answered Saul, her father. He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So... She deceives him again in word. And then later in David's life, when his son Absalom rebels and tries to seize the kingdom, David uses on multiple occasions what we might call righteous deception as he's running for his own life. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 15 to 34, David says to his servant named Hushai, as David's leaving town to protect his life from Absalom, He says to Hushai, if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I'll be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel had been David's counselor and had switched sides to Absalom when he thought that Absalom might take over the kingdom. And so David, in this righteous deception, sends in his friend Hushai, to pretend that he's going to Absalom's side to defeat the council of Ahithophel. And it works. It's part of saving David's life. And then just two chapters later, this is similar again to the Nazi-Jew scenario, two of David's servants, and these are the sons of the priests, they are on the run from Absalom's servants, and they need to hide. And a woman who's faithful to David hides them in a well. This is 2 Samuel 17, 19 to 20. The woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, and they said, where are Ahemahaz and Jonathan? Those are the servants. And the woman said to them, they have gone over the brook of water. They're gone, similar to what Rahab does. And then they had, and when they had sought and could not find them, they returned Jerusalem. So what do we say about these gray scenarios that are are not condemned but are part of saving the anointed's life and bringing him to the throne? Are there times when it's righteous not to tell the truth? Because truth-telling is far and away normative, for God's people and in the Christian life, the burden should be on the one who wants to use deception and justify it. And when in doubt, tell the truth. And the burden of proof should be on the one who wants to use righteous deception. Let me give you three observations in about these Old Testament scenarios, these gray scenarios. Number one, these are exceptional circumstances. They are not normal. They are unusual even extraordinary. The Bible is a big book with hundreds and hundreds of accounts, historical accounts. And the Hebrew midwives and Rahab and the beginning of David's reign and the end of David's reign are very few and far between. These are very rare accounts and scenarios. Number two, in these gray scenarios, the person who is righteously deceived presents themselves as an enemy. Rather than a neighbor, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And as an enemy, they are not posing a mild threat. In each scenario, the threat level is severe, even deadly. Life and death are at stake in the situation. Number three, note also that in most of these scenarios, a righteous person steps forward to act on behalf of another person. The midwives on behalf of the children, Rahab on behalf of the spies, Michal on behalf of her husband, Hushai on behalf of David, the woman on behalf of the messengers, covering for David's two two servants. The one doing the righteous deception is not saving her own skin, but coming to the life and death rescue of another. This is why... I would do what I could to deceive the Nazis. But the note to end on is not the very rare, highly unusual, extraordinary scenarios where we have the chance to deceive an enemy to save somebody else's life. Most of us have never faced a scenario like that and never will. This should not be normative in our ethics. Those scenarios are not where we get our bearings for truth-telling. Rather, as Christians, our aim is maximal truth, not minimal truth. Speaking the truth in love, Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Christians grow through truth-speaking. In Ephesians 2, 425, having put away falsehood. It's part of what it means to be converted. We put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This is who we want to be known as, as your pastors and as a church. We want to be known that we care about truth. We delight in truth. Truth is precious to us. We are willing to die for truth. And we want you to know this about us as pastors, that we are men who keep our word. We want you to know us as that. We are men. We want you you to see this and know this. We want to prove this to you. We're men who let our yes be yes and our no be no. We want you to know your pastors is utterly reliable, not squishy, not angling for some technicality on which we can use righteous deception. We want to be utterly reliable, like God is utterly reliable. That's who He is for us. We want to be like Paul in Thessalonica. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 to 4. We had boldness in our God, he just says, to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. And if we can't tell truth in the everyday scenarios, why would anybody trust us about an eternal gospel? For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, Paul says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." We want to embody the vision as pastors and as a church of 2 Corinthians 2.17. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And then finally, this one's best of all. If you remember one text from this morning, I would have it be 2 Corinthians 4.2. Just a few verses later, after that, 2 Corinthians 2.17. May God make your pastors like this. May God make us as a church to be like this, to tell the truth in color. Like 2 Corinthians 4:2. Here's what Paul says. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's our aspiration. That's our dream as a church. It's a dream that's in color. We're not dreaming of grays. We're not taking our bearings in truth-telling from gray scenarios. We we want to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We want to refuse to practice cunning or deception, refuse to tamper with or twist God's words or others' words. But feel the freedom and the joy in this. By open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. May God make it so. And may we as pastors and as a church always remember that when Jesus' hour came, he didn't maneuver to deceive his enemies or even to preserve his own good name. As much as Westminster says it's right and good, I think it's right to defend, one, defend oneself against lies, Apparently, that's not the only righteous course when you're lied about. Jesus did not defend himself before Pilate, nor did Jesus deceive or mislead his enemies to save his own skin. Even though he had the right to defend his name and the right to deceive his enemies, perhaps, should he so choose, this is what 1 Peter 2, 22 to 24 says. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So as we come here to the table together, we come together in Christ as neighbors, as one body. We come to a table here of truth. We bring our many failures The ninth commandment, if you linger over the ninth commandment for almost any time and you're human and a sinner, there are things to feel convicted about. And this table is a place to bring them. And this table isn't only a place to bring our sin. This is also a place to reconsecrate ourselves, to dedicate ourselves, to have a vision for truth in all of its color, all of its beauty, all of its splendor, to want to be the kind of people who would say, I I eat and drink with Jesus here. I want to be like Jesus in this way. May no deceit be found in my mouth. Like the Apostle Paul, by open statement of the truth, I would commend myself to others' consciences in the sight of God. So the pastors and worship leaders will come now This is a good place to come with your sin and a good place to ask for help in embodying more what's entailed in the ninth commandment. The pastors will distribute the bread, will hold it, retain it, and full disclosure it's gluten free.